Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Slate's Audiobook Club is brought to you by Audible.com. With more than 180,000 audiobooks and spoken word audio products, get a free 30-day trial and a free audiobook at audiblepodcast.com slash ABC. And by Texture, the mobile app that gives you full access to more than 150 of the world's most popular magazines anytime using your phone or tablet. Read Vogue, People, Esquire, Time, and hundreds more from back issues to the one currently on the newsstand. Right now, try Texture for free at texture.com slash ABC. Hello, and welcome to the Slate Audio Book Club for the month of March 2016. We are finally back after many delays, so thank you so much for your patience and emails. We really appreciate it. I'm Katie Waldman, words correspondent at Slate, and today I'm joined by Laura Miller, a books and culture columnist for the magazine. Hey, Laura. Hi, Katie. And also we have Slate senior editor, Laura Bennett. Hey, Laura. Hi, Katie. There's a lot of Lauras in here. I know. Is there like a collective noun for Lauras? A laurel of Lauras? Lauri. A lasso of Lauras? It should be like a wreath of Laura's because it doesn't come from laurel trees or something like that. Yeah, a wreath of We've Laura's. We've got a small wreath There's of, a lot Laura's, of Laura's, Laura's here in the Slate yeah. offices. That's right. This should be the topic of our audiobook club. <laughs> 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 well, today, in addition to um, the collective noun for Laura's, we will be discussing better living through criticism, how to think about art, pleasure, beauty, and truth. And this is by the New York Times film critic A.O. Scott. Um, we probably don't need a spoiler warning now because there is no plot to spoil. But as always, listeners should know that um, we will leave no stone unturned in our discussion of the book. So if you don't want things to be revealed, uh, probably not the right podcast. Go read the book and come back and we will welcome you with open arms. Anyway, um, Better Living Through Criticism was um, partially inspired by an exchange that A.O. Scott got into with Samuel L. Jackson after he wrote something disparaging about the Avengers movie. Uh, this is basically Scott's defense of criticism in which he submits that criticism is art's late-born twin. They draw strength and identity from a single source, even if, like most siblings, their mutual dependency is frequently cloaked in rivalry and suspicion. Um, and he continues and says, uh, will it sound offensive or pretentious if I say that criticism is an art in its own right? in the grand, fully exalted meaning of the word. So I guess I will throw that open to you guys. Do you think that criticism is an art in its own right? This is just, this is one of those questions that I feel like people get very exercised about and then ultimately it never really goes anywhere because it's kind of a meaningless question. It really depends on what you think art is. And if you've already decided that art is something so great that anything that is not sort of this Promethean, you know, eternal, uh, majestic creation cannot be art, then obviously you're never going to think that criticism can be art or that potting can be art or any of these other things that are sort of within the realm of human creativity. And in that case, I just think that you're kind of a 
you kind of have a stick up your ass and 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 I'm not really interested in what you think about anything. Um, but th- this did come up for me it, with with this book because you know there are definitely many critics whose work I find thrilling. Maybe I would because I'm a critic myself. But thrilling and meaningful in the way that we sort of assume art should be. And there are many novelists whose work leave me completely cold. And I don't think anyone would argue that the novel isn't an art. And so it it, it just seems like a, a so general a question that it's almost meaningless. And that is a little bit my issue with this book. Yes. Is that it's so generalized. And there are people whose minds love to go into this sort of generalized, abstract mode and people who don't. And for me, like the best argument that A.O. Scott could make for criticism is to actually do criticism. And I want to see him interacting with a specific work of art. And to Mm -hmm. me, I get more truth about what criticism means to him or what criticism means in general from seeing it done than from a kind of generalized discussion of it. Yes. I mean, I uh, I agree with what Laura just said, and that was also one of my biggest frustrations with the book. I don't think that this particular book is the best possible argument for criticism as an art form. Like A.O. Scott's body of work is a much better argument for criticism as an art form. This book is so abstract. Like it hovers so far above the material it's talking about. It dives in and out so neatly and threads the needle pretty impressively between so many different you know, works and critics and other voices that in the end you're left just absolutely uh, uncertain about what you know, what Scott himself feels a lot of the time. So I mean, it's it's interesting because I thought while reading this, I thought of some of the works, some of the essays, the sort of anthologies of essays of criticism that I've most you know loved over the years. I thought of Robert Warshaw, who Scott quotes in the book. I thought of Dwight McDonald and the way they both did what Laura was just describing. They made cases in point. So with Warshaw, it was you know E.B. White or The Crucible, uh, Dwight McDonald. He had this incredible essay about Tom Wolfe and para-journalism, and it was always the specific as a way to get at the universal. And there are moments when Scott does that really effectively. You can sort of feel him faint toward a close read that would have been really nicely unpacked in a whole essay, but he's so determined to get the bird's eye view to sort of stick in the realm of abstraction that it can be frustrating, especially when you know how capable he is of those kinds of cases in point. I really enjoyed this book. I do agree with you that it the highlights for me were not the sort of airy uh, pronouncements about what criticism is or could mean, just because I think that it's such an incredibly broad topic, the way he frames it. Like right. criticism is basically thinking. And so you you have, you know, what does it mean to think about something? And I'm just not sure how fruitful it is to, to make your uh, terms that broad. But I did think that his analysis of like the Rilke poem, he talks about the archaic torso of Apollo. Um, he talks about a Philip Larkin poem. He analyzes French New Wave cinema. But some of his close readings were just, I thought, brilliant. Like, I'm not sure in college I have encountered a reading of um, that archaic torso of Apollo poem that was as beautiful and satisfying to me as what was in this book. So I am forever grateful to A.O. Scott for that, at least. That's interesting because you come from a poetry background more than I think either Laura and I do. And the, you're right that those are, are things that he's able to criticize in the context of the book 
without starting to talk in generalities quite so much. And because it's more granular and because it's really within your wheelhouse, in a way, this book landed a little bit more solidly for you than maybe it did for us. Right. I mean, I agree that those close readings were some of the best parts of the book. I mean, but even, I mean, I loved the Rilke passage and it really stuck in my head as I as I read and afterward. But even he's so deft at hedging, like he's so good. The whole book feels like a really great argument for why A.O. Scott is intellectually engineered to be a New York Times film critic. <laughs> like he's so... Uh, he's such a successful sort of modulator and he can preempt all the responses to his work and sort of imagine a mass audience in a really effective way. But like with the Rilke stuff, I, I, I was like, is he advocating for ecstatic surrender to art or is he skeptical of it? I mean, you can – there are so many moments when you're not sure. He's sort of throwing his voice perpetually into that. Even – I mean, he does the Q&As with kind of an imagined more skeptical version of himself. But even when he's not in the Q&A format – Sometimes he'll state an opinion, but you know he's just about to overturn it. So he's he's always kind of dodging in and out of his own perspective and the imagined antagonist to his own perspective. Well, I think that really integral to his notion of what criticism is, is like the process of dialectic. And so he is all about synthesizing opposites and he will present an idea and then he will present the opposite and then he will sort of start moving each one towards the center or not even that, but just bringing them into into contact with one another in simultaneous uh, contradiction, I guess, and saying, well, that's the reality of things is this constant battle between opposites. Uh, I completely agree with Katie, but I would curious what you guys think is the is sort of dialectic as a sensibility. I mean, is that satisfying book of essays? Well, I, I think that there's there's really two kinds of critics. There's there's a critic who decides that the form that they're criticizing, the art that they're criticizing, needs to be doing something in particular. And a great example of that is James Wood at, at The New Yorker. One of the reasons why he is very popular, he's a critic who's able to write books of criticism where he talks about what the novel should be in his mind, and they're really well-received, is because he has a line. Now, he might quibble with what that line actually is, you know, and, and there's a lot of back and forth about this idea of realism that he has, but there there's he's advocating that the novel should be trying to do this particular thing. And then there's the kind of critic who looks at the field that they work in. And with A.O. Scott, you've got film. And so he's, we're talking about a form that encompasses both, you know, a Tarkovsky movie and the Lego movie. And both of them can be good. And yet they're incredibly different. And so there's the idea that you you criticize the work for what it's meant to be, for what it's trying to do, as opposed to saying this is what film needs to be doing now and it needs to have these qualities to be good, you sort of take the thing on its own terms and see how well it fulfilled those terms. Scott is more the latter type of critic. And so that type of critic, to my mind, is more interesting when he or she is actually writing criticism, but probably less 
exciting in writing a manifesto simply because it's very on the one hand. On the other hand, and, and there's this review that Leon Weaseltier wrote of this book where he just sort of lambasts Scott for sort of being too relativist, for not taking a stand on this, that, and the other. I, I might, you know, my impression is that he he felt that Scott it's Scott's job to be separating the great from the the lesser works and because he seems so kind of noncommittal, he's like the wrong – he shouldn't even be writing criticism at all. And I mean that is one view of what a critic should do. But, you know, I don't know that I necessarily want to read that critic on a regular basis, you know. I mean people find that thrilling, a really strongly expressed op- opinion and certainly there's something weird that people love about seeing a work of art banished from the realm of the acceptable mm. by some very high-handed critic. But you know, are they really addressing how books or films or television programs or whatever it is, poems, paintings, work in our everyday lives. We want so many different things from them and we want different things from different works. And that seems to me to be more in tune with with how we experience the art that we love. Leon Wieseltier is a critic who is incredibly principle-driven. I mean, in some ways, there's no one who's sort of poised more at the opposite end of the mythological spectrum when it comes to criticism. So that was indeed a very interesting review to read. And I do... In A.O. Scott's criticism, I love the way he's animated by the sense of, okay, he just sort of very fairly lays out, this is what the creators of this piece of art were trying to accomplish, here's how they did and didn't do it, and here's what it means. But I do think that even in this book reminded me of something that has, you know, wrangled me a little bit about his about his criticism in kind of the post, I would call it like the post-Samuel L. Jackson era, and how into, I think that into the sort of, you know, dialectical you know, voice he has, another voice has crept in, which is it which is fear of this of the Samuel L. Jackson's of the world. It's sort of a it's an anxiety about it's sort of a desire to preempt those kinds of retorts and how easily they proliferate and kind of a, a hedging that he didn't do before. I mean, in after I read this book, I went back and read some of his early reviews. I read it's not that you know, and it's not that I only love takedowns, but I read this like really satisfying evisceration of signs, the Shyamalan movie from two thousand two. I thought that was safely kind of pre-social media age, and it just like so you know neatly eviscerated the movie on the very fair basis of what it had set out to do and how it failed at that. And then I read another review of well, from, it was of the movie Joy from 2015, another movie that Scott didn't like at all. I mean, he disliked it less dramatically than Signs, but that review had it, it had language like it can be argued that Miss Lawrence is miscast. Like it was just you can kind of see the way he, it almost feels like he's more you know resistant to taking moral stances or to that he hedges a little bit more I think now than he used to and that you know I could be projecting that after having read this book but I do think you can see in his criticism a fearfulness that isn't just a product of his very interesting sort of dialectic sensibility that it's 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 something that's emerged newly as he's sort of felt the sling you know the slings and arrows of, of social media a little bit yeah, I mean that's really interesting. I do I do want to drill down into this. For me it just registered as like an intense self-consciousness. Um and I think part of it 
has to do with his theory of what art is supposed to do. It's almost like this in Soviet Russia art critiques you type thing um, where he will say, you know, um, he looks at the the torso, you must change your life. Um, and his idea of a successful work of art is really something that disrupts your experience, your life uh, to such an extent that you are cast into this kind of existential self-reflection um, and you see yourself anew and you feel your own presence in a way that you didn't before, somehow brought into relief by the presence of this alien thing. And I mean, to me, that was a pretty unfamiliar or just interesting and not expected uh, theory of what art is and does. Uh, and I appreciated him speaking in that way about what it's like to be in the presence of a successful work of art that is suddenly making you intensely conscious of yourself and your own biases. And I do wonder whether that is why he becomes so sort of self-doubting because I, I agree with you there is this kind of frustrating thing he does where he just even in the in the conversations with the other version of himself it's just two sides of A.O. Scott asking each other questions and no one <laughs> answering anything. You know what we're sort of talking about here is this sort of crisis of authority like what is the authority of the critic based on and in addition to sort of just getting a lot of flack on social media from people who disagree with you, there is the situation, and we've all had it, where between well-meaning people, one person is powerfully moved by something and thinks it's beautiful and masterful, and another person is like, eh, you know, or I hate it. Or actually, but really indifference is probably the more striking contrast, you know, between somebody who loves something or hates something, just, you know, some works of art, we don't respond to at all, you know, and, and other people, it changed their life. I mean, a great example is, say, On the Road by Jack Kerouac. Like for some people, that was a completely transformative book. For me, it was something I couldn't even really finish. And, you know, when, when more voices come into play, you know, when everybody gets to speak, it becomes harder and harder to feel that you can be authoritative. Like, what is the what are the grounds for you saying that joy sucks or that Jennifer Lawrence is miscast? You know, you you, you start to hedge because you realize that there are people who are smart, who you respect, who fully think the opposite thing. And then you kind of are in this sort of haze of self-doubt. I don't know if that's really what's happening with A.O. Scott, because he also has other issues. You know, he's he's writing for a kind of the quintessential paper of record. He's a white man, a straight white man, you know, like he may feel that he doesn't want to lean on his authority that hard because he sort of embodies some kind of traditional authority figure. And he doesn't want to be insensitive to the fact that in that tradition, a lot of voices weren't heard or acknowledged. So you can end up in such a state of sort of uncertainty or carefulness that I agree, it does seem like hedging. And yet, on the other hand, to just sort of ignore it and sort of be very Weaseltarian and grandiose and, and issue your proclamations from the mountaintop feels passe in a way. You know what chapter I loved in this book? I really liked the how to be wrong chapter. I thought it was, well, first of all, just interestingly brought his experience as a critic to bear in making really specific points about how to do criticism, like adjectives to avoid and why they 
are just totally useless. Um, he has this one great phrase about how you have to sort of keep to the stony slopes of argument rather than falling into the clammy bog of assertion, which I thought was so good. And the clammy bog of assertion refers specifically to adjectives like frustrating or disappointing, where you don't indicate exactly who's being frustrated or who's being disappointed and how it's kind of, you know, dangerous or just totally useless to not even acknowledge that to pretend you're delivering a universal truth instead of a personal reflection. And I just love the analysis in there of the wrongness of other critics like, you know, Frank Nugent on bringing up baby or and how those reviews did not stand the test of time very well, but how that's kind of the risk you undertake and the importance of being wrong. That was just a nice, uh, I just chapped a really I thought it was so interesting and so well done and so concrete. This episode of Slate's Audiobook Club is brought to you by Audible.com. Audible content includes more than 180,000 audio programs from the leading audiobook publishers, broadcasters, entertainers, and business information providers. Unlike a streaming or rental service, with Audible you own your books. And one book I would recommend is The Turn of the Screw. Written by Henry James and narrated by the Oscar, Emmy, and Golden Globe winner Emma Thompson, Thompson's performance brings Henry James's eerie, atmospheric classic thriller to shivery life. And right now, Audible is offering our listeners a free 30-day trial membership and a free audiobook. Just go to audible.com slash ABC and browse the over 180,000 audio programs. Download a title free and start listening. It's that easy. Go to audiblepodcast.com slash ABC. That's audiblepodcast.com slash ABC and get started today. Yeah, I mean, for for all that this is a book called Better Living Through Criticism, it does a great job of advancing very persuasive arguments against criticism. And actually, to some extent, um, I wonder which of these two that I'm about to describe you guys found more persuasive because it seemed like there was the argument from philosophy, which is like there's no rhyme or reason to aesthetic judgments. Like they're either all conditional or they're all – sort of mysteriously subjective. So you're either a product of your time or there's no way to root this in rationality. So criticism is meaningless. So that's that's one argument against uh, being a critic. And then the other one was this more sort of decorous like argument from etiquette, I think, that's like, oh, it's not nice. It's not polite to critique <laughs> someone else's work. And it feels arrogant. And, you know, you shouldn't tell other people how they should feel about anything. And I sort of suspected that A.O. Scott might actually be more susceptible to the second argument. Like he might actually think that there are sort of eternal standards or at least recognizable standards through the ages. But he's a little bit more worried about trampling on people's feelings. That sounds very, very plausible to me. I mean, I should disclose that he wrote before he was the film critic at the Times. He wrote for me for a, a, a book that I did, and he was a literary critic. And he was just, you know, one of the people that we all looked to, you know, as as one of the best in our ranks of people who are writing about books. And and the entries that he wrote for this critical encyclopedia of contemporary authors that I edited are just some of the best ones in the book. And I, I think that it comes back to what Laura was saying before, which was, which is that. You become more conscious 
of how people respond. You know, before when you were a critic, you you might have some interactions with the people that you wrote about. And and famously, theater critics have it the worst because they're actually in the same room with the artists that they write about. And and uh, I was close friends with a theater critic who just who would show up right before curtain and he would leave directly afterwards because the temptation to sort of socialize with people in the theater world was very real and also very perilous because it can compromise what you are willing to say once you realize that you can hurt someone and not just hurt someone's feelings, but really hurt their career. And it may be that there's more of that sort of feedback coming as well that, that might make someone hesitate. I do think he comes across in this book as just like kind of a mensch, like a curious, yeah. gentle... Which he really is. Right. Yeah. I, I mean, he, he seems like a lovely person. And the other thing, I don't know if you guys have read his interview on Slate.com with Isaac Chotner, which is just a pleasure. And it contains the same sort of dialectic spirit and, and resistance to taking like firm moral stances or ideological stances, but... It's so lively and passionate, and to just be with him on sort of a safari through the culture is so much fun. He has really, like, obviously really strong opinions about things from Melissa McCarthy and Spy to Leo and The Revenant to to Nutty Professor, I think, comes up in the article in the interview. And that makes, I think, a great companion piece to this book because you see sort of a different, like, sprightlier spirit who's not quite so concerned. He seems a little more, like uh, in the moment, he seems more spontaneous. He's not quite so concerned with his audience. He's just talking off the cuff. And it's just, it's really a pleasure. There also seem to be uh, two competing types of criticism um, throughout the book that I'm not sure if I wanted it to be resolved. I don't think it is possible to resolve the tension. But um, the first was criticism is judgment. So we find fault or we have this glut of cultural material and we need to rank and order them somehow. So enter critic, he will tell us what to seek out and what to ignore. Um, And then the second, I think the term that he used was loving demystification. So basically analyzing what it is that makes art work and sort of helping us understand our emotional or non-intellectual reactions to art. Do you think that one or the other of these is more truly the path of criticism? Or are they both criticism? I think that you do both. I think that there are people who who feel very strongly that it's a critic's job to just bring down the hammer on people who are doing it wrong and to just, you know, wail on them and make them wish they had never been born or never written this thing or never made this film. And that that's like a kind of a sacred duty of the critic. And I don't know that I necessarily agree with that. And I, I, I realize people think that's namby-pamby. But I guess it, it, you know, we don't really live in an age where that much culture is so supreme that it needs to be taken down. I mean, yes, it does happen. But the idea that that is your primary role, that just seems like a policeman's job and not really something that's that interesting. And, and it's definitely... You know, definitely readers like it. They like it when when you do just like a complete and total pan on somebody. But the times in my life where I felt like it was really necessary to do that as a critic have like I could probably count them on two hands. And I've been doing this for over 20 years. 
It's such a hard question to answer because, I mean, I've worked at places that really specialize. Like I worked at the New Republic. I worked for Leanne Weaseltier, which was a delightful and fascinating experience. And Slate historically has been kind of a master of counterintuitive, like, you know, Christopher Hitchensian uh, takedown. And I, I love, I love reading it. I love that stuff. I love when someone or something or some cultural product has gotten swollen enough and looms large enough in the cultural imagination that it's become taken for granted to to just puncture it, like whether it's, you know, Oprah or uh, Franzen or whatever else. That being said, I don't believe in gratuitous smackdowns. I think there has to be a real grounds for doing it. I think you have to I, I don't like criticism it feels cruel. I don't like reading it. And I certainly don't like writing it. But I do like I think, I mean, Dwight McDonald, I've already mentioned, but he's a great model of someone who could do it in a way that was so clever and so comprehensive that it didn't feel cruel, that it never felt like he was just taking a bite out of something, that he worked his way up to it. He, he established, you know, why, uh, you know, Tom Wolfe was, was so culturally influential, so significant and so pervasive that we'd started to take him for granted. And then he poked holes in it. That's really satisfying to read. I just want to add that probably with books, it, it, it's become over the years more and more difficult to actually find books that sort of squat on the culture in that way that also seem to need to be taken down. I mean, even really popular books often have a lot of very vocal critics among just regular people. And so it, it usually doesn't feel like there are that many sort of overinflated you know, elephants in the room to sort of take pot shots at, or that's not really fair, to, 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 that need to be dismantled. And and so it, it's probably different in other forms. Like if you like, you know, Daniel Mendelssohn does this a lot in the New York Review of Books. He'll do a takedown of Mad Men. He'll do a takedown of A Little Life by Hannah, Hanya Yanagihara. And these are, you know, books that everybody is talking about or television shows that everybody is watching and describing worshipfully. And, you know, every once in a while, they sort of unleash him on these things. And then he sort of dismantles them. And people feel that it's very satisfying or meaningful, even when they don't necessarily agree with him. It's just that I feel like in the world of books, there's hardly any books that are that significant, that there's even a perch to knock them off of. I really like Mendelssohn, I love the way he does that. I think it's really effective and is really satisfying. I think we probably would all agree that the sort of the backlash cycle on social media is a, you know, a scourge and that the way you can, it's like clockwork. You can sort of, you know, plot out when everyone will start to hate Amy Schumer. I mean, that mm. is, yeah. uh, <laughs> that is just a real, uh, you know, a plague on our culture. But I think we're talking about something different here. And I think and, and Tony Scott in the book nods to the uh, noxious effects of that also. Today's show is also brought to you by Texture. When it comes to magazines, you know what you like. And with Texture, you can get all the magazines you want in one super convenient place. The Texture app lets you tap into the world's most popular magazines anytime, anywhere, using your smartphone or tablet. Breeze through hundreds of your favorite magazines, including back issues, and pick the articles that interest you the most. Texture has made it easy to find articles you care about. I don't get to just read The New Yorker and Vanity Fair. The Texture editorial team recommends content for me every day. Plus, I can dive deeper with personalized collections. Sign up for Texture right now and gain insider access to all the content from the world's best publications. And the best part, Texture is offering my listeners a free trial right now when you go to texture.com slash ABC. 
you'll gain immediate entry to all of the top magazines, including back issues and bonus video content. Try Texture for free right now when you go to texture.com slash ABC. That's texture.com slash ABC. Well, isn't part of the problem that negative criticism sort of justifies its own existence more easily than positive criticism? Like, I mean, what do you do? Uh, some of the most difficult uh, tasks I've had as a book reviewer is uh, have been responding to works that I thought were just brilliant and perfect and I didn't feel like I had anything to add. And A.O. Scott um, writes about sort of autotelic art, um, art that is completely self-sufficient and inviolate and is sort of the perfect expression of itself. And how do you, I mean, um, dissect the butterfly and understand how it's working, but it almost just feels so thankless. Like, well, just to praise our own Katie Waldman. Oh, sorry. Can I interrupt you to praise you? <laughs> um, that the, What you were saying right now reminds me of one of my favorite views of yours of all time, which is of Helen McDonald's Ages for Hawk. And you seem to be struck in the way Rilke was struck. Just to, I mean, I'm, you know, you could speak to this better than I could because it was your experience, but just by the sheer majesty of that book, you didn't try to, I mean, you took it apart effectively, but you also just kind of stood back and marveled at it and you conceded, I don't even know how to talk about this book. It's such a good book. I had a similar experience reading H's for Hawk. I mean, what was that, what was that like for you, Katie? Is, did you feel like Rilke in that, in that scenario? Yeah. I mean, thank you for saying that. I think writing that review was sort of just trying to recapture the headspace of being inside that book and then producing words from that headspace that were not necessarily very analytical and, as you said, probably more awestruck. Um, but it did, I mean, that experience did raise the question for me, like, what is the point of writing a review of this book? I should just publish the text of the book so that people will read it and understand what the book is about. Um, but, you know, if, if it had been a different book that was not good, then suddenly the need for criticism announces itself more clearly. And you can sort of chart the distance between perhaps the aims of the work and the reality of the work. Um, or there would be, I mean, finding fault would just be, finding fault is more obvious and um, easier than deconstructing how something that is really good is really good. That's really true. But let me let me ask you, Katie, isn't it the fact that it's so hard to say why a work is great a sign that that is really the higher form of criticism because it's just so much harder to do? Yeah, I would agree with that for sure. Um, I mean, do you guys have favorite um, positive reviews? I have oddball favorite reviews like Edmund Wilson's piece about the Sherlock Holmes stories, which is a piece about detective fiction by someone who very famously didn't like detective fiction, is just such a joyful piece and so perfectly captures what's great about those stories, even though they are not actually what most of us would really think of as literature. I mean, there's this sort of peculiar category that that certain works of art fall into where they're just a joy forever, like Keith said, but yet you can't say, you know, you you can't say, well, that is in the same category as King Lear, but they probably have brought more pleasure to people in throughout their history. And so, uh, you know, I really like that piece as a way of sort of coming to terms with a work like that. Not to dwell too hard on, uh, on Katie's Ages for Hawk review, but I mean, when obviously when it becomes extra difficult to praise something is when 
I mean, it's just you can't rise out of the pack to praise something that's already been praised a lot. So the most fun opportunities, the most useful, you know, valuable opportunities to praise something are works of art that ha- that you feel like you're discovering. So obviously, you could place, you could put the whole text of H's for Hawk on on Slate. No one is going to going to sit down and read it on Slate. Um, so you kind of have to do the work of of promoting it and of, of sharing your tastes with the world. I remember, I mean, to lower our brow slightly. I discovered High Maintenance, the excellent web series on Slate, because Dana Stevens sort of stepped out of the – she pulled it out of the ether and said, watch this. It's worth watching. She just gave it like one very eloquent thumbs up and then, you know, it was was kind of like service journalism, but it was really useful and really meaningful. I think A.O. Scott talks a little bit about this too and he – he is bringing together uh, eros and criticism. And he says, our desire to think about recapture and communicate our delights to make them less solitary, less ephemeral, that is the critical impulse uh, when you get down to it. And I was really intrigued by this thread throughout the book that was saying criticism is sort of making love to our favorite art objects. And uh, he even quotes Sontag saying that in place of uh, hermeneutics, we need an erotics of art. And that did seem to be something I'm not sure he agreed with, but that he was definitely interested in. That's Um, funny because it's hard to think of a less erotic critic than Susan Sontag, which was uh, the irony of that. But but this is how I think of writing about a book like that. I, I mean, I mostly write about books. So coping with a book that has some effect that you can't explain why. It feels tremendous. It takes you up. It takes you down. It takes you in. It takes you through. By the end, you know, there's just this condition of stillness that I think you have when you reach the completion of something that really feels like a work of art that that is so difficult to, to convey. But what you're writing in a good review is a description of your encounter your experience of that work. It's almost like a memoir in a certain way, although hopefully it's not overly, you know, personalized so that no one else can relate to it. But, but, you know, that that's the alternate to the sort of purely analytical approach. So maybe it is the same as sort of making love to a work of art. It, it, although I think that's just a horrible Phrase. I know. <laughs> just, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I just hesitate to have it. But you're really, you're, it's a dispatch, you know, in a weird way, it's closer to journalism than purely analytical criticism because you're just giving an account of what happened to you when you met this thing. Right. I mean, I think the books that are hardest to review are the books that serviceably, effectively accomplish what they set out to do, but you, you know, you sit back after finishing them and acknowledge that it just wasn't for you. Like yeah. Girl on the Train, we talked about that book in this podcast many months ago, and that was so hard to to kind of review as a critic because it was a bestseller, people loved it. I I didn't because it wasn't for me, it's not my, st- you know, it's not my style of book. It's a, it's a perfectly, like, you know, well-constructed, unobjectionable thriller. And that's the kind of thing where it just becomes to come at it with the, you're just not sure what sort of lens to bring to bear in analyzing it. Yeah. Well, and that also brings up the question of, like, who are you supposed to be as a critic? Because, I mean, A.O. Scott says the most important quality in a critic is voice, which kind of threw me for a loop. I was like, since when? Since when is the critic's voice important, but I can see why he would say that. 
anyway, though, there's sort of this expectation that you are speaking for the common man and that you are telling people in your herd um, as a, you know, altruistic herds member, read this or don't. But at the same time, something needs to give you the authority to discriminate. And you're supposed to have some kind of special uh, insight into the lay of the land. And so that did seem to be another irresolvable tension. Like, as a critic, are you special? Are you an outsider? Are you someone who could potentially be mistrusted as not part of the group? Or are you sort of an every dude? Um, in which case, why listen? Yeah, there's there's always been this sort of weird tension. Just by virtue of being a critic, you're you're being an elitist. And this mostly comes up when people don't agree with you. Like if they hate it and you just demolish it, they're they're your biggest fan. It's only when you do that to something they like, which was ultimately the upshot of my piece. Is like, I don't really think you need to defend criticism because most people don't have a problem with it unless they disagree with the critic in a particular case. But to the voice thing that you're saying, like above all, what a critic is as a writer, you're writing something. You need to be a good writer, and and you need to write something that's interesting, that's well crafted, that people find engaging. If you think of it as writing a memoir of your encounter with a particular work of art, then you you get into a, a frame of mind where you're not constantly asking, well, what is the authority of this person? And the authority of any person writing a memoir is that they have an interesting story to tell and they tell it well. And if you can do that, then you don't really need to have like a little crown on your head that says that you've been voted by everybody to be the person who's who gets to decide whether something goes into the canon or not. One line that I particularly liked in N.A.O. Scott's book, I think was actually the kicker of his book, is a true critic is someone who knows at long last when to stop. Like I guess you could say that of any writer, but there was something so sort of self-defeating, but also it made me wonder well, maybe that is what a true critic is. Maybe he makes his argument. He says just enough. He lays out the the sort of A plus B equals C, and then he, you know, stems the flow of words before they, I mean, before they sort of mean nothing at all. What did you guys make of that line? And did you think it was meaningful? It baffled me. I mean, I, I, I mean, definitely, you know when to stop because you get a word count when you write for a print publication. Right, that's very useful. That's very useful. Yeah. I mean, in the, any piece of writing can go on for too long, no matter what it is. That's and right. so many things that I've read in my life are things that would be so much better if they were just, you know, X percent shorter. Even more true with films, because you can't really modulate the speed with which you watch them. But um, I found that a, a weird, a, a strange... After so much, you know, uh, vacillating and back and forth, I wanted so much for it to be meaningful that I was ready to eat it up. I was like, that's the takeaway. A true critic knows when to stop. Put it on a bumper sticker. Yeah. <laughs> it was great. I mean, I found that to be a really satisfying conclusion, even if it was kind of uh, mystifying, too. Uh, the way I read it was, like, a true critic is someone who knows at long last when to pass the torch. And so I sort of equated it to the line where he says a critic is one whose interest activates the interest of others. And so in the same way that he describes the paradox of like feeling the presence of a work of art like that torso of Apollo or like Marina Abramovich and that that sense of presence activates your own sense of presence and your own feeling of being alive in the world, uh, the interest of the critic 
activates your own interest. And so the critic stops and you become the critic and it's just this endless baton that's being passed out to so the generation. That's so smart, Katie. So Thank smart you and for so generous. <laughs> oh my it's, God. It's great. Perfect. Well, we've just, uh, there's nothing more we to say about it. this book. Yeah, we solved it. <laughs> I, I just, I, I do want to say that, that, that I, you know, I know a lot of young critics and they, they have found this book incredibly meaningful. So I feel like that it does speak to sort of the crisis of having the authority to speak in a way that maybe I'm not is not such a big issue for me. You know, I'm pretty established yeah. in what I do. So uh, it's a defensive criticism, and it may be that there are people who need that more than I do. And I would recommend it for them. Yeah, if you wanted to write a sequel to this book or write your own version of Better Living Through Criticism, I would oh, gobble you're so that. Me sweet. too. I'll pre-order um, it right this, now on I mean, Amazon. Sorry, that was. I hope that didn't sound too. Yeah, no, you can't speak it. That um, does not go in no, on the audiobook club, Katie Waldman. But I still okay. really appreciate it. That I think is a great place to end. So thanks so much, guys. This it was, was really, really fun. fun, Katie. Thank so you. So much fun. Thank you, guys. The homepage for the Slate Book Review is slate.com slash books. You'll find the show pages for this and every episode of the Audiobook Club at slate.com slash abc. Visit our Facebook page where you can leave a comment on this episode. That address is facebook.com slash slateabc. Please subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, which helps other people discover the show. Search for Slate Audiobook Club in the iTunes store, and don't forget to leave a comment while you're there. Slate's Audiobook Club is part of the Panoply Network. Find out more about all of our great podcasts at panoply.fm. Our producer is Jason DeLeon. Slate's executive producer is Steve Licktide. Andy Bowers is our chief content officer. For Laura Miller and Laura Bennett, I'm Katie Waldman. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.